How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Nearly every company under the sun claims it is going green these days, but what does that really mean? There's a spectrum of corporate behavior ranging from greenwashing to transformative change. How are business executives measuring their efforts to save energy and money and reduce carbon emissions? How can consumers judge what companies are real and who's faking it? In the next hour, we'll discuss sustainable production and consumption with our live audience in San Francisco and three experts. Michael Golobter is Chief Green Officer at Hurrah, a software company. Eric Olson is Senior Vice President for business at Business for Social Responsibility. And Glenn Lowe is Principal at Blue Sky, a consulting company. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for coming. Um, Eric, let's begin with you. You say there are four pillars that sort of go into... Uh, shape the way that consumers and companies think about sustainability. We can drill into them, but just lay them out for you. What are, what are sort of the main areas that people care about uh, when they look at a product and where it came from? So I don't remember saying four pillars, so I'm really glad you're already holding me to it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Greg. So the Several areas with sort of the main areas where people think about where the product came from, how much energy it's used, and gotcha. where is it going to go okay. afterwards. And four, you know, one of the one of the struggles we have in this work is making things simple enough that we can actually understand what's going on. Um, you know, if you're a company of any size and you're taking a look, or if you're a consumer looking to buy a product, um, and you begin to dig into all of the issues around where it came from, who made it, what's in it, what happens when you use it, and then where it goes when you're done, um, the list for any company of any size or any product that's not incredibly simple is going to go into the, the thousands in terms of different materials and people that you'd have to worry about. So we boil this down um, to a couple things. And the topic, the main topic today, is one of the more useful climate and climate impacts um, well measured across that entire life cycle of a product is a really handy proxy for what's going on. So we might say how much energy is the product using and are ambitious efforts being undertaken to reduce that Mm-hmm. How much energy is involved in making the product? Uh, sometimes we call that embedded energy. You can actually line up a product, go all the way back through all the steps from extraction to primary metal production to assembly, and figure out for your printer or your cheeseburger how much energy went into making it. So you can see, you can imagine the complexity in that. So one of the things you might look at is operating performance of the company itself, a life cycle look at what's in the product. And this, by the way, is not just the eco indicators of climate and energy. This would be what, how has it touched people along the way in the communities where the materials are sourced, where things are made, and then obviously direct impacts of the product. And then finally, um, I think it's really important to look at what the company is doing, both at the top of the company, what's it saying and then how is it behaving in different parts of the world? And so we look for tangible commitment from a CEO, uh, hard measurements, 
um, that we can assess in terms of how things are changing over time. And last but by no means least, what are the people all about at the shop floor level? Um, I think a culture of a company speaks a lot. And then finally, and I will give up the floor, I promise, the, um, I actually, and maybe we'll spark a little bit of debate here, I actually have a lot more confidence in what a company is doing if it's obviously good for the business as opposed to something they're trying to present as altruism. I have a, a, a hard time believing in the long-term sustainability, pun intended, of corporate altruism. Now, we can talk about you sure. know, how enlightened self-interest could be, but that would be the other thing. Does it make sense what they're doing? And Michael Globeter, uh, a lot of what that is, is stuff is difficult or new to measure. And you work for a company that says that now all of a sudden uh, CEOs care about the carbon in their in their supply chain, and 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 they, now you, there's a way for them to measure that so they can really see if it makes sense to the bottom line. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that's one of the great opportunities and great challenges, which is that if you look at how software has transformed business over the last 20 years, it's been in revolutionizing processes that have already exist, that have already existed for thousands of years, right? Customer relationship management, inventory, supply chain, payroll. These are things the Roman Empire did. These are things people did back to the beginning of time and the beginning of commerce. Uh, energy and resource management has, has not been a systematic business process, right? Nobody ever tracked bales of hay per beer cart pulled by horses in London um, or where the manure went afterwards. And they certainly have not been doing that with respect to modern industrial energy use significantly. We're now entering a world where, we have the, where we've hit those limits, right? We, we know we're running out of fossil fuels. We know the prices are going up. We know we're running out of atmosphere. Uh, and a variety of other resources we need to use energy, and energy is becoming much more of a day-to-day currency. Carbon, certainly, as a friend of mine says, is becoming the first new global currency since gold. Uh, and as a result, um, we're, you know, Hurrah has developed a software product that's really aimed at, at facilitating and the creation of that, of that really new business process, a, fundamentally a process that's core to everything people have always done in business, but has never been transparent, has never been auditable in the kinds of ways that Eric's talking about, and has never been a, a, a source of deep savings and, frankly, deep rebranding and value for companies uh, to, al- to align their energy profile with their business outcomes. So people are realizing that energy is more expensive. Things that used to be free, like dumping waste into the rivers or the yeah. atmosphere, yeah. there's now going to be a cost associated with that, whether it's a regulatory cost or a, maybe a consumers may punish companies. Yeah. Um, Glenn Lowe, you say that it's actually a myth that what gets measured matters. You think that a lot of gets measured that doesn't really change behavior. Yeah, the, the, the key here is data is great, and, I, and I've talked with a number of your peers and such, but ultimately, it's decision-making that matters. And so if you look at the bewildering amount of data that's out there, if you go all the way from cradle to cradle, starting with the raw production all the way to consumer use and then hopefully uh, reuse and recycle, those decisions that are made in every part of the supply chain, it, there's just an infinite amount of data. And ultimately, what you need to do is change decisions. So it's not for the sake of information. It's actually for making better decisions. And so the beauty of actually the data that that um, we're talking about is if you can see the places that matter, the few places that matter, and mobilize resources against that to drive efficiency, that's what's most important. Because I think we've talked with a number of companies. We actually have four or five efforts underway where we're helping companies think about an index or thinking about measurement. And that's where they often get stuck. They get stuck with, wow, there's so much data out there. How do I make sense of it all? 
Well, give us an example. What, what are some really big places uh, that do matter, that aren't being measured or that people have overlooked in the past? You'd think that all the efficiency has been squeezed out of these, these large companies would have found every efficiency to be fine. But where, where are some big areas that, that, uh, that mat- matter? Yeah, th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a piece of work we're working on right now with the apparel industry, which really focuses on looking at their supply chain, in essence, redefining how a sustainable apparel is made. And there's a lot of specific impacts in the dye mills and the energy efficiency of that, but, of course, in the raw production of the cotton in terms of the fiber itself. And so if you look and go all the way back there and you ask companies today, do you have real visibility into your supply chain, they'll actually say, no, I have no idea where the cotton comes from. And so that kind of visibility, that kind of transparency, and then moving to specific parts of the supply chain and asking what practices are being done in the farm, what practices are being done in the, the dye mill or, or the cut and sew factories, that's where it matters. I could, if I could elaborate on that, yeah. just I mean, to give an energy example. Um, you, you know, we are in a very, uh, the fashion industry has become a, you know, up to the minute delivery of what's hot on the street today. What that means in the hinterlands of countries that are producing textiles is that the person running a plant says, we need blue, run blue, and they boil a bunch of water, dip a bunch of fabric, flush. We need red, they run red, and then they hear they need green, and then within two or more hours they need blue again. And you're looking at hundreds of thousands of gallons being reheated very rapidly to dye the same color at two different or three different intervals in the day. And meanwhile, other colors have gone through and flushed. It leads to pollution in the rivers, leads to incredible waste in energy and water. Um, and, and if you could create a scheduling system and visibility, you can save literally 70 or 80% of the, of the energy and water use in those kinds of environments almost immediately. So that kind of transparency, where you have to make those key decisions, okay, let's slow it down like by two hours a little bit, the, the just-in-time production by two hours, and all of a sudden you're saving 80, 90, 80, 80% of the resource use. Let's talk about some of the drivers. What, what's really driving this? Is, is it the fear of regulation? Is, is it consumers now care more about where the cotton comes from? I never, how many people think about where the cotton comes from? But now we're thinking more about these things. Is it, is it, uh, is it compliance? What are the drivers of, uh, behind this? Eric Olson? This, uh, this is a great question. And I, I, uh, I think it really varies quite a bit by the company that we're talking about. And maybe we can make some generalizations by industry. Um, a very interesting debate goes on in a lot of our work uh, with these companies about the question of whether we need to be primarily listening to consumers or leading them, or more realistically, what's the balance between the two? And there is a school of thought that says what we're talking about is so complex uh, that most of the research shows that what consumers want, they're generally more aware but they want us to solve the problem for them. They're not going to sit down and ask for fair trade cotton. They don't even know what that is. Um, but they do know that they want a product that doesn't um, have a story behind it, practices behind it that they wouldn't believe in. And they just want the problem solved. And they want it to be beautiful and cheap and, 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 and. So um, the conclusion that most of the people I work with come to from this is it's not we're not going to wait for the consumer to ask for it. We're the ones sitting in massive supply chains with scientific staff, with other people who can see that if we don't find a better way to do this, the you know soil conditions, air quality, energy availability, water availability, and the place where we're trying to produce millions of units per year just isn't going to be there. So we actually have to sell these better practices to consumers or at least make them sort of neutral just so that we can do what we need to do for the next five to ten years. So I, I'm actually finding that as a more common pull. It's actually fairly rare in my experience, except for very niche 
products in parts of the world like this one where you can articulate a consumer base that's saying, well, I want my local food or my, you know, my slavery-free iPod or whatever the the (laughs) issue might be. It's just not... It's too complicated. It's a luxury that we have here yeah. to think about those things. Glenn, right. you want to jump in? Yeah, actually, I, I would definitely agree. The consumer in the near term is not the point of leverage. It's the supply chain. And it will, it will be driven because it makes business sense. And if you think about how consumers see the 400 or so eco-labels today and how confused they are in trying to make sense of what they're seeing, they simply can't. And it's funny because if, if you look at the published studies that talk about the labels themselves and how redundant those labels are, the fact that there's no accountability for what the labels are actually producing. In, that, in essence, they're not measuring impact. It's no wonder that consumers can't make sense of all the things that they see. And it will be businesses who find the business reason for driving the differences in the supply chains, the optimization of the supply chains, using whatever knowledge is available that will make the difference in the next two, three years. It won't be the consumer. If I, if I could add, I think I think there's a, I think consumers are one, and I think there's but I think there's three or four really deep dimensions that make this a, a movement that has legs that's going to go on for basically forever from here on out. And one is the fact that there has begun a shift, whether it's ahead of the curve or behind the curve, in consumer perception of the interconnectedness of the supply chain. But you're also dealing with resource scarcity on, on the fossil fuel side for sure. Uh, you're dealing with security issues that are quite significant in, term, you know, in terms of our, the unrest in the Middle East, our engagements in, mil, in, in military engagements around fossil fuels, and you're dealing with the, car, the, the climate change imperative and the energy independence imperative and, frankly, an international competitiveness imperative around clean technology and clean energy. These are all different companies have different positions with respect to these pressures and these, uh, these imperatives, but it's all over the place. And, 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 and I don't mean all over the map. It's just a constant drumbeat no matter what dimension you turn at. How many CEOs can afford not to be able to answer the question of what's the impact of the next BP oil spill on your business, right? I mean, those, those are the, the risk management alone. So a wide array of, of drivers that are quite deep. This is not kind of a surface thing that's in Northern California. It's around the world now. So it yeah. sounds like a combination of offense and defense. It's mm-hmm. defense. It's preventing future risks. Mm-hmm. You've got to get ahead of some things that are going to hurt us or yeah. cost us money either in financial terms or, or brand terms. And it's also offense. Is it also offense to sort of get ahead of the competitors or get ahead of the cons- lead the consumers, Eric Olson, you seem to be saying? Yes, I, I certainly believe that. And again, I think it um, is different in different industries. I think um, if you look at, so our organization, we work with uh, about 280 different companies. And we've sat back a few times and, and looked across the membership, looked across other companies and say, why are they doing this? How did they get into this? Uh, and it really is, it's an interesting mixture. And I would say if you look at the companies who got in early, the vast majority were confronted with this, a scandal of some kind or the threat of some kind of scandal. Our organization was actually created in the aftermath. Our founding CEO came out of Levi Strauss, and it was very much in the heat of, as some of you will remember, you know, Kathy Lee Gifford on television, and there are children making our clothes and so on. So... There was a huge defensive piece in, in that wave. Um, also some companies from the beginning, such as Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, and others who were on offense, I would say, or at least a, a more mission-driven platform to start with. As we've seen things move to the points that, that both Glenn and Michael have been making, the imperative um, on either offensive or just good long-term management of resource has come up. So the if we look at the 50 odd companies that have joined us in the last few years, they're not being pushed by scandal. They're being pushed by questions 
by the last, um, you know, the, the ricocheting commodity prices, the financial reset of two years ago, things they never expected they'd have to deal with in business school certainly doesn't teach you to be ready for a real shaking in confidence of their traditional planning models, an ability to make sense out of what's going on in now the 100, 150, 200 countries they're trying to do business. I don't know if that's offense, but it's certainly not the same. It's not just compliance. It's not just staying out of the headlines or staying in compliance with the law. It's really fundamentally questioning what's happening and how they can remain competitive. Uh, in a very, very changing. Gwen Lowe? Yeah, and I, and I think a, another lens to apply to that is I, I think the sustainability leadership about five years ago was very compliance oriented. It was eco-efficiency mm-hmm. oriented. And sustainability leadership today is about competitive advantage. It's about innovation. And if you look at the companies and where they are on adopting that, it's, it's based on how material is, is it to their business. And so resource intensive industries, uh, a lot of p- folks who are exposed from a risk mitigation point of view, they adopted it early. But then if you, if you were to go even further out and look five years, five years from now, what will sustainability look like? It, it won't look like uh, PR. It won't look like compliance. It will have moved much beyond that. And ideally, it will have moved to system level changes where the cost of things that have been, from the economics point of view, externalized, actually do get internalized, whether it's carbon, whether it's water. And so those kinds of market mechanisms will actually help make us better decisions. But will will those externalities be internalized without some significant policies? Because right now, at least in the U.S., policy seems to be we don't want uh, energy-efficient light bulbs. We want the government out of the economy. So how is that market mechanism going to work if there's no policy drivers? Uh, companies who want to lead will, will create it. And there, there are two or three real good examples that are, are early goings. Um, we'll see how they turn out, but I think it was a, a week ago or two weeks ago, Puma announced that they're going to try and do this environmental P&L. In essence, they're going to try and quantify. Profit and loss, so they're going to try to exactly. count for. Okay. They're going to try and quantify that. Uh, TNC and Dow announced probably a few months ago a $10 million Nature project. Conservancy? Correct, okay. correct. To actually try and, again, quantify on specific projects the economic impacts of nature. And so if you think about the ability to quantify nature, what, what I call a new accounting system for, for this new age that we're entering, it's hard, absolutely. But the people that will drive it are the companies that have material impacts that will see the business benefit from doing it, and it probably won't be regulatory. So uh, if I could jump on that one uh, just a second. I, I don't disagree with that, and I do think that beyond um, – that the pace of change that we need, the, the uh, scale, the scope of change that we need will require a policy framework that goes much further than it has to date. I think what's interesting um, about what companies are doing is, so what can they do? They can do the things that Glenn is talking about, which I absolutely agree with. You do it for business reasons and it's innovation. But there's also a an element of corporate leadership in the space which is called influencing policy in a progressive direction. And this is actually relatively new and is in a very tricky space to work in, to be honest. So what's the difference between lobbying for your near-term tactical interests versus trying to influence policy in a way which has strong elements of broader common good? We have seen it around climate legislation, and some of you will know uh, the coalitions such as USCAP, the Climate Action Partnership, BICEP, 
which I'm not even going to try and define. I don't know if you guys remember it. Another coalition of companies. Consumer-facing companies, yeah. Consumer-facing companies. Nike, Levi's, and others. Exactly. Arguing, saying, we need a level playing field. We need incentives. We need long-term predictable signals around the cost of energy sources and other things in order to be as competitive as we should be. And in absence of that, with all of our wonderful innovation-driven things, we're only going to go so far so fast. So please, put a tax on that carbon or at least establish a long-term price. We'll be better off. We know how to innovate around predictable constraints. What we don't know how to do is invest when we have no idea how scarce something is going to be, how cheap or expensive it's going to be. So there's this area that we're spending more time working on, which is how do you organize and work with companies and their influence on policy in a way that people can agree is good and not lobbying as usual. And it's very tricky, but I think very, very important. Eric Olson is a senior vice president with Business for Social Responsibility. We're discussing sustainability also with Glenn Lowe from Blue Sky and Michael Galopter from Hurrah Software. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, do these companies that, that lead, that get out front and say, look, that this dichotomy between the economy and environment is false, do they make more money? Do their shareholders benefit from this leadership action? So, I mean, let me, let me say, I, I think, that I definitely agree that we're going to need policy for big change. But I do think that what you're saying there is also a huge driver. And I think there are a lot of companies like a Walmart that are taking pretty aggressive actions right now. And at the end of the day, the biggest value of scale is the size of the bets you can make that you win, right? I mean, the best use of large capital is winning big risk bets. Um, and you saw that in historically in many industries. You know, when people are, you, know, you look at the meatpacking industry at the turn of the last century when we couldn't sell meat into Europe. We formed an FDA. We put a lot of dysfunctional small producers out of business and created a giant meat industry, for better or for worse, in the United States in, in the 1900s. So you, you, there, there's a history of very big industries emerging from these kind of pivotal moments in whether it's food safety, um, energy, energy constraints, change in resource availability. And I think you see quietly a number of companies making those kinds of bets in their supply chain, in the way they de- deal with energy, in the way they digest it, process it, understand it, what we call it, sort of organizational metabolism. Um, and, and that over the next five or ten years, that is going to be part of the policy tipping point, is that, the, that with the right data, with the ability to measure the value of those bets, there are going to be different policy positions taken by companies because they'll understand quite clearly the implications and where their bread is buttered in, in the kind of policy game around carbon and energy. But um, but it's a, it's, we're looking, we're witnessing, and you know, this is, we're talking about this in the, in the green room, the, the China, Chinese competition for clean tech. Um, that industry alone, the core of the industry around energy, is wildly competitive. Lots of nations, the president himself, since our Sputnik moment, the nation that controls the energy economy is going to, the clean energy mm-hmm. economy is going to control the future. Uh, and then non-energy companies like Walmarts and, and companies that make things like Dow Chemical and others use a lot of energy. Um, their positioning is going to give them a radical advantage over time uh, with other companies. Policy will accelerate that, and they'll be, they will choose positions and be part of that change and that shift, but they're positioning themselves for that tip. So, Glenn, uh, Lowe, do you agree that, that it's a competitive advantage? And does, you, your firm works for Walmart. I mean, does Walmart know how much money they've made or saved by, by their sustainability initiatives? They certainly do. They certainly do. But I, I think one thing that... Is it a huge amount of money? I mean, is it... Oh, a, clearly in the hundreds of millions. Like, even in the, the fleet efficiency... It's in the hundreds of millions annually. So being green is not about being good. It's about saving or making money for Walmart at, and significant amounts. That, that's correct. That, and certainly the benefit of scale. Um, but, but also getting – but they're, they're creating barriers to entry by doing this. 
by being smarter and faster and quicker um, at, at not just cost, but energy, is a barrier to entry to their competitors. Yes. It makes sense because it makes sense with their business model. Everyday low prices, the way they think about the supply chain, it makes perfect sense for their business model. It doesn't make perfect sense for every company, but for Walmart it makes perfect sense. Because energy is a proxy for waste. Packaging is effectively waste, right? So Correct. by getting reducing energy, get rid of packaging, they're saving money and and everybody wins. Is that- yeah. Packaging is a great example. You end up paying for it twice. You pay for it when they actually ship it in the packaging and you pay to throw it away. And if you can eliminate that, if you can optimize packaging, you don't have to pay for it. Glenn Lowe is a consultant with Blue Sky. We're discussing sustainability at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, let's talk about some specific uh, specific industries. Uh, dairy is one that uh, gets a, a lot of attention lately because of the, the methane, the impact, and some people are out there saying that that what we drive is more important. Sorry, what we eat is more important than what we drive in terms of our personal carbon footprints. Uh, cows, you know, agricultural sort of uh, industrial agriculture is a huge. Uh, contributed to greenhouse gases. What's, what is the dairy industry doing to try to get ahead of this and, and be, be cleaner? Glenn? The, the dairy industry for years has been trying to work on carbon. And about a year and a half, two years ago, Blue Sky worked with the dairy industry um, to, in essence, identify where are the hot spots. So very much like, like Michael is saying, figure out where in the supply chain are all the impacts. Focus on the few things that matter. And there's a lot of conversation today about enteric methane and the contribution that that has for global warming potential. And so really they're trying to figure out, okay, what are the practical solutions? Whether it's capturing that and turning it to energy on the farm, like what are the economics of actually implementing those solutions and has a lot to do with economics, has a lot to do with the supply chain, who they're selling it to the, to the retailers. But I think that the most important point is it's about system change. You can't just change farmer practices and solve the issue. You have to have the whole supply chain together working to optimize and making sure that, in essence, the math works. Does the math require, uh, if the incentives are not aligned, as, as people often talk about, does that require policy intervention? Are they going to do this? Are they suddenly going to say, oh, we can make money out of this waste, this you know, cow uh, <laughs> discharge or whatever it is going to be is an energy source, yeah, not yeah. that something we... Can- can I tell a story about a dairy farm I actually bought some offsets from a few years ago in Wisconsin? The guy had a, got a master's in veterinary medicine and moved back to the community he'd grown up in to build a farm, now two, that sourced all its grain from within a 10-mile radius, um, shipped all um, and and shipped no waste, pumped water three miles, pumped what le- was left after they digested the the, the, wa- the manure and the waste out to fields within three miles. And the only thing that left that farm was uh, was milk. Um, and the only thing that arrived was grain, pretty much that had been grown within a 10-mile radius, with a couple of food, at food, you know, a couple of nutritional additives here and there. And he'd managed to create, quite simply, a pretty closed-loop system. And his goal wasn't even uh, his goal was to reinvigorate the county he'd grown up in economically. Um, and he'd successfully did that. Um, so there are lots of different motivations you can do that. But the point is, by thinking whole system, he was able to create this amazing dairy farm. That, um, and I think there's a huge heroic narrative in the food industry to, uh, in general. Hurrah has a number of food, food-based clients, whether it's grocers like Safeway or UNFI, the, the, one of the largest um, distributors of organic food in the country. Um, the, there is a real, a, lo- a huge carbon impact to the food, to the food and to the food supply chain. But there's also huge leverage to change practices, agricultural practices, methane capture, where you can literally become a producer that differentiates with an 80% leap in, 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 in uh, benefit 
pretty quickly because it's so obvious what's going on uh, by intervening in agricultural systems in other places. Michael Globter is Chief Green Officer at Hurrah Software. Uh, Eric Olson, there's another food example, McDonald's. Mm. People don't think necessarily green when they think of, of McDonald's or, or healthy, and yet you think that they've done a fair amount in this area. Uh, they've done an enormous amount in this area, and the um, I take it as one of the great examples. You know, we were talking earlier about what, you know, what are the motivations and to what degree um, are consumers demanding um, better products, safer, uh, healthier, uh, more environmentally preferable. And, and the way I like to think about companies like McDonald's as put aside um, uh, some of the companies, the specialty brands and retailers um, who are able to cater directly uh, to people who are interested in eating very differently. Um, is, and charge more for it. And you, generally we pay for it, and it's, mm-hmm. it's really uh, quite easy to live that way again uh, in the city that we're sitting in. And the way I think about what uh, McDonald's is trying to do and other companies like it, I call it sustainability for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we need to find solutions that work for food um, at a scale that is actually capable of changing how a very large majority of us eat. Um, what they have done is started, uh, as many companies do, with some very, very simple measures and ideas. Their supply chain is absolutely enormous, as you can imagine, and started by asking uh, suppliers some very simple questions. How much energy are you using? How much water are you using? Um, in some cases, jumping over their first tier of suppliers and intervening or at least trying to understand back at the farm level, which is kind of an interesting thing to do. Uh, in doing that and going through some of the, the kind of thinking that um, we've already talked about today, identifying hot spots, areas that really matter, they were able to laser in on issues like antibiotics in, in uh, some of the livestock streams that they have and actually find ways by working with these same suppliers leveraging their scale and influence to get them out. But to get them out and to move in that direction in a way that can be scaled across a supply chain um, uh, that is absolutely huge. It's not going to be good enough to run a pilot in one portion of the United States or in one uh, commodity. They need to find ways that can then be adopted incredibly broadly. Now, the other big piece um, for them and for a company like that is obviously the food itself. And uh, I think it has been interesting to see what they've been doing with the menu um, in terms of uh, adding elements to it, some of them um, uh, a lot healthier, a lot more messaging. Um, and one of the things, and I saw a presentation by their CEO, Jim Skinner, was actually at our conference a few years ago. It was really quite interesting and I think highlights also the role for companies like that in popularizing the importance of these ideas in ways that people like myself can't do. Um, you know, the marketing, the same marketing genius that we see on our television sets, for better or worse, on Saturday mornings and at other times, speak to people more broadly. So their marketing of milk to kids was a great example that he told. And this, you know, this sort of, you know, exactly what you'd expect. You don't just sell a carton of milk at McDonald's. It's going to be in this container with all kinds of cartoon characters on it. And then stats behind it. Lots of plastic. And another, and yet another issue to work on, absolutely. And then you look at then what it's driven in terms of consumption of milk, of vegetable sides with the Happy Meals and other things. And you can take a perspective that says they have done more to increase the consumption 
of raw vegetables and milk by kids than any one of the specialty brands that I might prefer. And how so much a, different, this, yeah. a different angle, uh, very much a different angle on the problem. Eric Olson is Senior Vice President with Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, when I see those McDonald's ads and they show the burgers and the salads, I say they really want to sell the burgers. The salads are there because they wanted the government not to regulate fast food, that they're partly playing defense. I mean, any truth to that? Is that too cynical? Um, so it's a great question. I, don't, I think it is too cynical because the um, what they want to do is serve more customers at absolute highest margin they can get. But they make more money on a burger than a salad, probably. Uh, Maybe not. Uh, that's not okay. a safe assumption. So, okay. so that's part of that's part of the, um, you know, again, when I talked about how do we assess the credibility and the staying power of these efforts, when they roll something out at that scale, they roll it out because it works, and that okay. means it works at a couple different mm-hmm. levels. The the goodwill that they would be attempt to be buying in no way could compensate for rolling out across that massive chain something which doesn't actually sell or work. They just they couldn't do it. So in that sense, it's self-regulating. I think they would be absolutely delighted um, to have uh, to be able to sell a whole bunch of new uh, product at interesting margin through the system. And this is a class, one of the classic cases where we get into this question of what's the role of company with its brand, with its reach, in terms of advertising, in terms of framing, positioning our purchasing choices, in educating people uh, and, and, and contributing to shifts in behavior. Let's talk about greenwashing. We know it exists. Will you, any of you give us an example of, of greenwashing where a company didn't have a holistic approach or it only went, went skin deep? I mean, one easy recent example is, is BP, which said, they were beyond petroleum, and then they had some of the biggest industrial disasters and, of course, the Gulf oil disaster. Uh, clearly, they weren't walking the walk there. Uh, their marketing got, uh, wasn't followed up by, by action. What are some other examples of companies that, that have really kind of not delivered on their promise that they made? Glenn? I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. And it, the, the premise of the question is that it, a lot of the benefit is a, a PR function. And so BP is the obvious example. Like I have my own, excuse me, I have my own personal examples of uh, brands that pro- profess a green, a green element to it, but it's, it's what I call the sins of greenwashing. Um, and there are many sins that are actually true. Um, I'll use one personal example that, that resonates with me is, is Ethos Water at Starbucks. And so it's not like I've done work with Starbucks, but in essence, you can buy it. You may not now, but go, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's true. But keep going. You, this you is can good. buy a dollar ninety bottle of water, and they contribute five cents to clean water projects in Africa or whatnot. But then you ask yourself, well, what are all the benefits and detriments of bottled water? And you think about, well, why doesn't someone just buy a dollar bottle of water and send the ninety cents <coughs> to do clean water instead? And so for me, it's it's a little bit of bite-sized things that consumers can do, but ultimately you actually want them to do more. And so in that sense, the marketing, the distinguishing of that brand versus other brands with that one twist, I personally personally feel it's greenwashing. And, and another one of my favorite examples is, you know, these bottles you see these days that say up to 40% uh, corn. Well, what is that? Zero to 40. You know, it's closer to zero than 40%. Uh, plant in those plastic bottles, right? And that just seems to be like some, you know, a pretty bald 
attempt to trick consumers into thinking something's happening that's really nice. Well, really not, Michael. I, I mean, I don't have any. I don't have any specific examples, but I would say the whole area of sure measurement. Sure, you do. Well, <laughs> the whole area of measurement, uh, as you described, zero to forty percent. It's not. It's not that they're tricking. They may not know in large supply chains. And in general, I've done a lot of work, obviously, on carbon and carbon measurement. There, are, I, I would say, anybody with a particularly precise carbon number on a product is at risk right now because there has to be the integration of this kind of business process that I described. Um, and really, I mean, uh, many, many drivers, one of them for hurrah has, uh, uh, for customer adoption among our clients has been the desire to understand carbon, have better reporting on carbon. And until that ecosystem matures, a, a hard number on a bag of potato chips may not, um, may not stick very well. So I understand it's complex. This stuff is hard to measure. This is new. Then companies shouldn't make these bold claims unless they can back them up. Is that fair? So sure. I, and I, and, uh, go ahead. Then. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I'll say I'll one. say that a number of our clients and uh, that a number of our clients and unfortunately the ones that I can use here I, I can't name their brands, but a number of them are specifically using our product to back those claims up uh, and to build those kinds of claims. Absolutely. And they 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 sometimes they got ahead of themselves, but found that they were right. Sometimes they wanted to get ready to make those kinds of claims, which is why they're putting a rigorous measurement system in place. And again, that's just one of the kind of decisions, as Glenn said, that they can make. They can make other decisions like to save money. Or things like that. If they get it wrong, do they actually confess and, and come clean with their <laughs> their customers? Uh, there was an example of what was, what was well, this? None of our customers have gotten it wrong. Uh, <laughs> they, Michael, <laughs> please. Nice, nice, oh. nice. Michael, you're setting yourself up. Why are we, we're gonna. Uh, there was what was the example of the, the Swiss company that made uh, metal water bottles, and they were supposed. Ugg was it? Shug? Sig. Sig. Yeah, and they. The big mea culpa by their CEO. Sorry, we had this chemical inside. You know, yes. we, we're selling this as as cleaner than plastic. Yet there's the same some of the same chemicals are on the interior of these bottles. And it wasn't until the company was basically outed that the CEO came clean on that. Eric Olson, you were going to say. Something. Yeah, I think the um, so I have I have real mixed feelings about this topic in most instances um, for for one reason, and it's a, it's a U.S. centric viewpoint, uh, admittedly, and that is. I'm actually more often in my work frustrated by the unwillingness and inability of companies that are doing some worthwhile things to talk about it because they're afraid of that accusation. I find almost any company, even the ones that we like to put on a pedestal for their bold new um, product ideas that seem to be going in a new direction, they are not green companies. They are at best a work in progress. and you could point a finger at the things they're still not doing right, and yet I believe that part of educating us consumers and building support for the new things requires that they get out and be a little promotional about it. So I actually find, uh, and, and it's litigation, it's it's the brand-related uh, fears, and I actually have a big problem with it. Now, having said it, it's obviously the case that you completely dilute the value and impact if you're just with one big green brush covering um, a wide range of activities that range from truly new with company commitment behind them and things that are one-offs. And so that, that to me, is where I draw the line. Uh, you know, you pick an example where you've got just a whole range of activities. I think the automotive industry is a perfect one. I love what Toyota has done with the industry in introducing and selling at an interesting scale a hybrid drivetrain. You can absolutely, if you dig further, you can take a look at, well, how have their SUV sales been trending at the same time? They didn't stop selling them. They're not going to stop selling them until the attractiveness of them is 
decreased to a point where it doesn't make sense and they're selling more of the others. Does that mean they shouldn't talk about the benefits and, the, and gain some value from promoting the newer cars? I'm not so sure. I'm really glad they put a lot of marketing money behind that car. They made it cool to a lot of people who were not greenies to start with, and that's a good thing. I guess what I would look for, and in their case what they are um, filling in behind it, is signs of broader progress. It isn't just we're going to sell the Prius and the rest, you know, the mainstream part of the portfolio goes in whatever direction it is. I would look at it and say, great, love that, and what's happening to the average fuel efficiency and the other impacts of the rest of the fleet at the same time. And as long as those are moving, I'm happy to put, you know, the portion of what they're doing up, and up on its appropriate pedestal and say, yeah, we need more of that. It's not perfect, but we need more of it. I want, back, I want to push back a, a little bit on this consumer thing again. I mean, I think there's a huge amount of green claims being made in the B2B world, in the business-to-business world, and in this kind of supply chain issues that Glenn was raising. So, you know, a customer of ours, Diebold, that makes ATMs, right, and is being asked by their by banks, by tens of thousands of banks all over the world, what's how much energy does this do your machines use? What does it take you to service them? How much energy goes into that and the manufacturing of them? And hired us to help them answer that question. The thing about claims you make in that space is that they're, you're, deal, you're making them to people who have lawyers and an ability to sue you if you're, if you're lying to them or wrong and are going to make you hold the liability. So we're seeing tremendous demand for the kind of information that, that our, our, our software can embed in an environment that is actually sort of self-regulating, right? Because it's in the contract, right? It's like I've asked, I'm hiring you because you said you're going to use less energy in the machinery you sell me, that the machinery you sell me is going to use less energy. Um, I want you to prove that. I want you to show it to me, and I want that to be part of the bid that you make in. And then if you lied about it, I'm going to not pay you for what you delivered to me. Um, so there's an ecosystem emerging in the B2B world that we're seeing a lot of that's pretty powerful uh, and giving people a chance to practice for the business-to-consumer world um, that we've mostly focused on. But what's cool is that it's really happening uh, in, a, in, a, in a litigable, um, enforceable way in business-to-business -business relations today. So companies don't dare cheat other companies, but they're willing to kind of oh, be elusive yeah. with consumers because consumers are less likely to hold them accountable. <laughs> it depends Actually, on the client. You know, <laughs> the consumer can be pretty, you know, the case of SIG that you listed is a consumer. It's a different kind of punishment, let's put it that way. But they're, they're equal. They can be very yeah. severe in, in either arena. Eric Colson, you... you Got off the hook a little bit, and, and without citing a, a greenwashing example, do, is there one that that you can think of that sort of a company went out there and, and made a, a overreach and made a claim, and, and that they had to correct, or that they uh, made a claim they couldn't back up? Um, let me think of one specific example. I actually think that this happens all the time. Um, so we re consumers really ought to be very wary when some company says this product I'm is clean. We ought to be very wary. I think if someone comes out and says this product is clean, uh, which I'd be shocked if they did, I, they are setting themselves up for something. I think that kind of an absolute claim um, is rare. Um, it is almost never true. The, the companies that, have, that are working, I think, in good faith on this effort, making progress that makes sense for their business, will talk about making continuous improvements. Um, you know, you see words like it may not be much, but at least it's a start, etc. Um, I'm trying to. Th I think the the energy industry has had. You know, you can pick on categories like coal and some of the promotion uh, around these. You know, terms like clean coal. Um, you know, which it's an oxymoron. Which uh, you know make the hair stand up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is there better coal? We were actually joking about this because we're at, we're engaged with the industry um, uh, in some parts of it on efforts 
to address uh, and make improvements, both environmental and labor social. And the question is, well, how do you talk about it in a way that has integrity? Um, and that's a, a tough one. It's certainly not clean coal. Um, let me think of other ones. I think you could say any company, if in the context of, of saying, you know, what are you doing for society, starts talking exclusively about philanthropic investments or look at this wonderful thing we did, therefore, you know, dot, 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 therefore, we're a good company. I mean, these are all little instances. Yeah. I look um, for the things that are on the side of their core business. Yes. If we If we did something way over here that doesn't really affect our core business. Gwen Lowe, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, and actually, let, let me offer uh, what I call connecting the dots, a lot of the threads from this conversation, because whether it's consumers, a lot of the conversation we've had, whether it's regulatory, government, whether it's people who are selling things or people who are making things, it, it's all about changing decisions. And I would actually throw in another one we haven't talked about, which is the investment community and their ability to make decisions. Mm. And so when you think about all the decisions that could be made that change the system, and the data that could be available as we get more and more what I call radical transparency. It's the ability to affect all points in the system that will lead to this kind of revolution, in essence, of better, more sustainable choices. And so is there a lot of greenwashing today? Absolutely. Right? Most companies, when you ask companies today why they do sustainability, the number one reason is public relations, So, and, and undoubtedly so. And so is there greenwashing? Absolutely. But if you're a consumer today, it's about seeing the, the level of responsibility throughout all parts of the, the supply chain and holding people accountable. And so don't, don't take green labels uh, at face value for the next probably few years, in my opinion, um, at least for most. And a differentiator between these two guys and us, right, is that we're, we're providing the infrastructure for the greenwashing to go away. Right. I mean, that, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to say, pity the poor corporation. They can tell you their profits, but they can't tell you that their product is clean. Because so wait, you're no saying bit- if they, they've installed this software that they're not going to be <laughs> well, greenwashing anymore? The industry, we're, the industry we're in, right? I mean, the problem is there aren't the metrics and the, and the, the rigor, transparency, and auditability of that claim is the, is the challenge you're, you're raising. So when they can measure it, they'll be more honest exactly. about it. And the okay. point is there hasn't been a business process around claiming clean. Right? There is one emerging. There's a set of software packages emerging. Right to date, these, these folks have made the road by doing great consulting work to large companies. And now it's really about embedding those measurement systems and those management systems in place so that those claims can be made reliably. Um, and you see, you know, the FTC, state attorneys general starting to look at these things. And you're going to need these kinds of systems in place to get, to get to the point where you, where we'd all like to get, where we feel like a claim can be counted on, a green claim can be counted on. Michael Globter is Chief Green Officer at Hurrah Software, also discussing sustainability with Glenn Lowe, with Blue Sky Consultants, and Eric Olson with Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to invite you to uh, come up, and if you're on this side of the room, I'd invite you to please go around through that back door where Adam is over there, and we'll put the microphone out here, and then we'll, uh, we'll have audience questions. Uh, and, and while we're doing that, um, I'd like to come back to consumer labels, uh, Glenn Lowe, you said uh, there's 400 of them. Don't trust any of them. Well, didn't if, quite if you say said, that. If you said 400, then, yeah, then you've already, you know, narrowed it down quite a bit. Yeah, the real the, number is thousands, right? I really? Mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. How yeah. many? And so this is immensely confusing for consumers who care. Uh, is this, how's this going to play out? Are they going to consolidate in some way, or is this going to be some real confusing way where consumers have this, this amazing array of, of uh, labels and we can't make sense they don't mean anything? I think that uh, 
there are labels out there that I, I personally like. Energy Star is one of them. Lead, if you look in the, the building space. Like, there are a lot of credible labels out there, but from a percentage basis, most of them are not very good. And so how will it trend? I, I actually agree with Michael. I think as more data becomes available, as accountability, as consumers can hold companies accountable, there will be fewer labels. And in my opinion, I think there will be what I call index-type efforts that have the science behind them that can be communicated to consumers from business to business as well and investors where they'll be able to make actual decisions with hard science and data behind it. So it's going to be some time, and we'll get some, we'll get some better uh, measures. Let's have our first audience question, please. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Carter McCree, and my question has to do with. Hi, my name is Carter McCree, and my question has to do with an editorial this morning in the Wall Street Journal, basically saying that the federal courts have no business dealing with climate legislation or climate change. It was written by a couple of former Justice Department people for Reagan and, and W, and I'm just wondering what you guys think about the, there's a case, I guess, next week that's coming before the Supreme Court that they were talking about, and some of their arguments were things like the Chinese are way ahead of us, they put out more greenhouse gases, so why do we care? So the courts, I mean, we do be, we're in an era where there seems to be some rollback of environmental efforts. Who wants to take that one? I'll, I'll be honest, uh, the courts weighed in in 2007 in a definitive way saying that in the United States that greenhouse gases were a regulable pollutant under the Clean Air Act, single most important legal decision in global warming in the United States. And I'm glad the Supreme Court weighed in. It weighed in to say, yeah, the law applies. Um, and if they want to say the courts want to stay out of it now, that's fine. Unfortunately, the Clean Air Act is a blunt instrument to regulate greenhouse gases with. It's an instrument that industry would not like to have be the primary instrument. I think environmentalists would prefer to have another instrument. Uh, if the courts stay out and the Congress doesn't act, it will be the instrument. So good luck to the Wall Street Journal editorialists. Next question, please. Hi, my question is for Michael Globeter. Um, looking at uh, the Hurrah website and some of the clients that you advertise on your website, Notably, um, a lot of Fortune 500 corporations, large corporations. I'm wondering about your software and the permeability of it uh, to small-scale businesses or, for example, the real estate industry where about 75% of buildings are family-owned or independently owned where we don't have such large influence. And I'm wondering if you could speak to... Um, the ability of your company to um, permeate those smaller businesses, the smaller business community okay. and uh, independently owned businesses. Michael? And how they're, basically how they're going to be able to afford putting in a carbon measurement software such yeah. as yours. Yeah, no, so, I mean, there's no question that we're we're an enterprise software package aimed at larger organizations. Uh, we are, in the case of, in, particularly in urban areas, where we've got a partnership with ICLE, which is a consortium of the, the green, the 800 of the cities that have made big climate commitments around the United States, we're talking to folks in the, in the Clinton Global Initiative and Clinton Climate Initiative and the C40 cities as well. A lot of cities have, and governments in the state of California have taken up this, um, the need to develop a tool set, tool set for small businesses. And we're talking to some of them about creating um, um, regional memberships. For example, we work with uh, Sustainable Silicon Valley um, to help companies down in the South Bay um, participate in a system at lower cost initially to get their measurements up and going. So it may not be us, it may be us, but you can look for consortiums, turn to local governments and, and the regulators who are starting to try to solve this problem uh, for small businesses and smaller property owners. In particular, a lot of big cities are mandating that 
any large property, whoever it's owned by, do annual annual um, audits. Um, Paris, London, New York, D.C., other big cities have done this. It's going to probably wrap in a lot of family-owned folks who own a few big buildings, um, and you're going to see data systems emerging. We're talking to a number of cities about how to help use our system uh, in a way that may not be owned by you, the small business, but available to you as a tool to manage. Next question, please. My name is Olaf Hansen. I, I had the chance to host some decision makers on sustainability from Europe last week, uh, uh, academia, industry, politics, and they were appalled at how little uh, education on climate change exists in this country. They met with officials both in D.C. and Sacramento. So uh, that's a lead-in to my question, um, especially because they also met with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, what can we do to educate that chamber to sort of look at that sustainability is competitiveness on the global market? And, and what ideas do you have to sort of persuade the chamber to sort of be on board? So I'll, um, I'll, I'll jump into that one. Um, and um, I don't know if this will be a satisfying answer, but my honest answer is I don't think I would spend my time trying to convince the chamber. I think the chamber, by charter, like a lot of trade association-type structures, represents and is bound to represent the mass of its members. And it does tend, despite whatever intentions uh, it might have, therefore, to a, a lowest common denominator approach. It's a big challenge. They tend to be uh, more play more of a drag anchor role in these sorts of things, and part of it is they are, by charter, representing the industry, or in this case, business as a whole. Um, I think the way to change the chamber is what you saw a little bit of in that round of action leading up to the, the climate meetings last year where you had companies defecting. Uh, so if I want to change the chamber, uh, I go after the top 20, the top 50 active members of it. And when they start talking differently, the chamber will follow. The chamber will not lead. I just don't expect it. I don't think it's the role they play, and they won't play it. Eric Olson is Senior Vice President at Business for Social Responsibility. We're discussing sustainability at Climate One. Next audience question, please. Thank you. Karina Kester, um, Berkeley Haas School of Business. My question is, several of you have promoted the importance of companies educating consumers on sustainability, but at the same time, I'm also getting the sense that there's a large amount of greenwashing that I've heard based on the discussions today. What about consumer trust of green claims? Beyond data tracking, how do we regain consumer trust in the face of skepticism of green claims? That's a great question. Glenn Yeah, not an easy one to answer because trust and authenticity is the one thing that, that will get the consumers to believe in the green claims. Um, and data certainly is part of the answer. Um, I, I do think it, it also has to be simple. There has to be the data behind it. It has to be something that people can relate to, the, the contextual understanding of what they're seeing. Um, but I, I actually I do. I think there needs to be a lot lot less of the green claims out there as well because even when I go into a store and when I think about trying to buy a green product, it's, it is quite bewildering. You have no idea. And so I think for those consumers and especially younger consumers as they are quite, quite savvy and they click down and really figure out what's in a product, I think having the data there, having the measurement there is quite important. 
But so, you're a sustainability consultant. Do you, do you advise your companies make fewer claims? Make make you know, you know, yes. Did you, Eric? Well, so I think I think that's part of it. But there's another important piece. You know, Michael, you you said you work on the infrastructure, uh, and I think what you're talking about is one important piece of infrastructure. There's another really really important piece of, I guess you could call it human or almost cultural infrastructure that is key on this. So we're working with companies. Let's think less about the marketing claim and more about how we go about doing business. And so there's another buzzword in our work. Uh, call it stakeholder engagement. Call it governance, how you operate. And we, so I would much rather see other people, not the company itself, understanding and talking about the benefits, talking about the behavior of that company, talking about the benefits and problems of a product than the company itself. So a lot of our work, we're actually bringing um, fierce critics in some cases, certainly neutral experts, uh, people from outside community members into the decision-making processes of these companies. I think that behavior is also part of building trust. Show us the uh, warts and all, the challenges you're facing, the parts of your product challenges you've solved, what you haven't. Um, and embrace and engage ideas from outside of the company. So this very different model for even how to run a company, this has become surprisingly widespread. You don't hear a lot about it, uh, but a fair number of companies have now instituted pretty formal mechanisms by which community members, academic experts, uh, critical and not-so-critical NGOs come in and hear, first of all, hear and see the challenges unfiltered and have direct input and, and guidance as to what to do. That to me is a is a much more direct path to the trust question. I don't. I think there's a limit to even no matter how wonderful a company might be doing, there's still a company trying to make money. That's how people are going to hear it. You, there there are other ways to go about this that might be more effective. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Stephen Teal. I'm interested in an education question. In that, when you enter new engagements with clients, how much time do you typically spend, uh, or do you find that you need to educate them? as far as, you know, the services that they're interested in, or do they know exactly what they want and, and uh, how you're going to deliver that? These guys charge lots of money for their smart services, so they, they <laughs> I'm sure you go things that they don't know. Sorry. Gwen, Lowe? Yeah. The, the, the simple answer is that it really depends. Um, there, are, there are a number of companies that are asking for really pretty sophisticated things, um, and education is actually not that important. But having said that, the, the vast majority, education is a key component. And mainly it's because when you drive change for a company, you drive it from the top down and from the bottom up. And so when you look at the people who, who are rank and file, and when you think about engaging executives, they, they often don't quite have the, the local experience that I've touched and felt experience of what sustainability means. And so one of the things that Blue Sky loves to do is what we call eat what you cooks, which is in essence taking part of the company, often leader, senior leadership, to go touch and experience things, whether it's in the U.S. or whether it's international. And that actually, the, the ability to go and see something and be able to touch it, it, it actually, no matter how advanced you are, it, it actually triggers something in people that, that today in how we uh, internalize sustainability, it, it feels like this environmental concept that, that's really hard to grasp. Experiential learning. Glenn Lowe is a consultant with Blue Sky. Uh, next question, please. Hi, Mike Jackson. Uh, I'm curious about this distinction between software, scalable, um, easy to analyze and replicate at a large scale versus uh, bringing consultants to evaluate 
enormously complicated tasks that maybe, you know, a project done with one company, very difficult to take that and use the same models you used for the next. How does that play out over time? And, and what are the areas where scalable software can be helpful for, uh, for a sustainability initiative? And where does the role of consultants really um, continue to um, continue to really be the, the right answer for companies? Well, I mean, I, could, I mean, we work hand in hand with a, with a, a number of consultants. Um, I don't think we've actually engaged with either of you guys yet, but we work with PricewaterhouseCoopers. We just announced a global partnership with HP. Um, but I think I think the key really is to sort of see that uh, the software can help you not just with gather the information, but to actually embed the kinds of decisions that Glenn's talking about, to track their outcomes, and then to drive innovation by replicating and scaling decisions that are good, smart things that you do, what we call best practices. But actually designing those for a particular industry or a particular company is very much still in the hands of consultants, right? And what we're often sad about is that really smart people are out of many companies spending all their time measuring. Um, And somebody who can do a great carbon inventory or energy inventory for a global corporation is much better used driving that energy use or carbon inventory down by 10, 20, 30%, which they're perfectly capable of doing, but instead are caught up with elaborate spreadsheet systems. Um, so our system really is a place to take the wisdom those people embed, get the measurements right, and then embed some planning, some action, some innovation. Um, but that's going to come from the human intelligence either within the company or with a set of consultants that we either partner with or they bring in separately. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. I want to ask each of you sort of where you think this is going to go. Some of you use the term sustainability 3.0, 4.0 in the next few years uh, in terms of take your pick, consumer labeling or what do you think is the most important uh, trend that's going to emerge in the next few years that's really going to move sustainability to be more uh, more credible, more trustworthy uh, and, and and more effective. Well, I'll I'll start. I mean, I think we're going to we're going to start seeing much, in a much more common way, whether it's in small family-owned large pieces of property or large portfolios of buildings and equipment, we're going to start seeing people knocking that 30 or 40 percent that everyone thinks is fruit lying, you know, on the ground, off the table, much more quickly and much more, in a much more widespread way on energy and water use. And then that's a platform to do everything else. These guys are, are so good at it. So let's get the easy stuff off, and the easy stuff is astonishing and can get us way down the road towards a more sustainable world. Two-part answer. On the business side, I think what you're going to see is system change. Companies working together with people that they've never worked with before, mm-hmm. whether it's NGOs, whether it's government, whether it's communities. Um, I think that that will be a very important trend. Uh, the second on the consumer is I, I like to think that in five to ten years, you could walk into your local supermarket and, and not a Whole Foods, but a, a Safeway or, or whatnot, and actually trust the labels that they see they could even perhaps check out and instead of saying, well, your Safeway card saved you $3.37, you'd actually see, wow, I bought 70% green products or this saved this amount of water. Like that kind of vision of where I think consumers could go it requires a lot of infrastructure, but that is what sustainability is going toward. And you think that they would also, that those green products would be at parity, not cost more than the, than the comparable products? My, my, my deepest desire is that Five, ten years from now, it probably won't happen quite that quick. The lowest cost product will be the one that has the least harm to the environment and to society. So once things get internalized, in essence, the cost of things, whether it's carbon or whatnot, the lowest cost product is the product that's best for, for all of us. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, Eric Olson? So I'll build on those rather than repeat because I agree with both. Um, the element I would add is the, I think the biggest change is that 
the conversation we're having right now is very likely to be superseded by a conversation that's more obviously global, meaning what we're seeing, the most rapid changes um, in the work that we do has been the rising emergence of the Chinese voices, the Brazilian voices, and that means what Chinese consumers, Brazilian consumers, as well as people who do the kind of work we do, is becoming more and more and more a dynamic, may at some point become the defining, if not dominant, axis around which this work turns, and it's very different, and, and you're well served by understanding it now. We're, uh, you know, far, if we've continued to, to you know, even through the, the reset, as it were, to, um, to our activity continues to build in this country and Europe steadily in places like Brazil and China three to four times as quickly. And our only constraint is on the supply side, is resources, human capital. And these are emerging in our companies as the markets they're designing products for. So the game's going to change a lot uh, in that sense. So I look forward to a really, really different Climate One conversation where maybe I'd be the only American on stage or not even on stage at all. The, uh, so it's no longer the era of American consumers shaping global business patterns. It's, it's the certainly it's, not it's, as dominantly as it has. We're not going away, I don't think. But yeah. we'll have to end it there. Our thanks to Eric Olson with Business for Social Responsibility, Glenn Lowe with Blue Sky Consultants, and Michael Globter with Hurrah Software. I'm Greg Dalton, and thank you all for listening to Climate One today.